it is good to be back. And uh, as you could probably imagine, uh, my mind has been in a lot of places for the past, it seems like two or three months, but especially the past few weeks. And I didn't really feel very comfortable about uh, just jumping back in at 1 Corinthians, having been gone and, and really just couldn't get my mind to go there. So suffice it to say we're going to wait until next Lord's Day, if the Lord wills, and we'll pick up our study of 1 Corinthians at verse 10 of chapter 1. What I want to do today is address you briefly with a very simple question that I caught running through my mind several times in, in recent weeks. And the question is this. What will you do with your sins? That's the question. What will you do with your sins? I want you to think about that. I want you to get it fixed in your mind. I want you to roll it around in your mind and keep it there. Uh, I'll, I'll repeat it many times. And as I've said oftentimes before, we get into this routine of hearing sermons where we think that our job is just to sit and uh, endure, endure the audio. You know, we'll be quiet. We'll hear the things that come out. And then when we get done, we'll be finished. But I don't know this for a fact. I've heard the word sermon actually means conversation. It assumes that there's a back and forth. It assumes that I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, I'm looking at your eyes, I'm giving you things to think about, and you're actually receiving them and thinking about them. So that's what I want you to think about. I want you to just roll that question around in your mind. What will you do with your sins? Now in my normal routine, which I've been out of my normal routine, but in my normal routine, the super majority of my time is spent in the presence uh, or relative presence of eight or seven people. That's, that's the, how tiny my circle is spent most of the time in my house. Seven other people including me, eight souls in all in my home. When we gather here, if everybody comes and I ask this, or was asked this question many times while away, tell us about your church. Uh, and I would say, well, if everybody shows up, babies and all, and when, you, when I would, especially with Presbyterians, you know, they, they wouldn't make the distinction, but I would say babies and all we might have 80 people. Well, we're well below 100. We're not even, even at 100 yet. So I get a small group of people. Whenever you or I go to town, we might be in any given situation surrounded by thousands of people, even though even at that point, it's kind of hard to uh, see them all to really understand how many people are around you. We're, we're not the type of people here who are constantly... Uh, surrounded by a mass of people. Several times in the past month, whether it was uh, in airports or driving through bigger cities or towns, I was able to lay my eyes on what, at least to me, would be a, a pretty vast multitude of people. There are, there are some airports in the world that, are, that, that don't mind jamming a lot of people into a small place and just saying, just wait here for a while. And you can look at them and, and you, you realize this is a lot of people. Now even those large numbers that we might get to see from time to time are, are insignificant compared to the actual number of souls on this planet. The, the biggest number of people that we might see at one time is relatively 
not even worth noting because there are so many people in this planet. And, and when I, I would see these vast multitudes of people, this question would run through my mind. Almost like I could, if I could imaginative, imaginatively shout to all of them or, or confront each of them maybe one-on-one and just ask them, what, what will you do with your sins? What are you going to do with your sins? I'm assuming a lot of these people have probably not ever worked through that question. If it pops into their minds, they put it out very quickly or, or maybe they reason through it. But that just kept coming to my mind. What are all these people going to do with their sins? But we have to reason with that as well, even as a small group. What are we going to do with our sins? We wouldn't consider the area in which we live to be a highly developed metropolis. But from the top of a mountain or from an ascending or descending airplanes, sometimes you get a bird's eye view of what really are truly dense cities. Densely populated cities. That means a lot of people crammed into what is actually a small space. You get to see it. You can sort of see the, the boundaries of what is a major world city. And it's, again, I can't comprehend it. I can't fathom it. All of these are houses. There's somebody driving every one of these cars. There are people in all of these places. And yet for each of them, just like us, all of these people in all of these huge cities, there is, for every one of them, there is a record of an untold number of sins with their name on it. All of these people, all of us. Now what's even more fascinating to me is when you get even higher above these cities and you get to see how this huge city compares to the broad landscape of the earth. The earth extends out beyond it, these cities. And you realize what we call major metropolises, big, bustling, developing cities, they're microscopic in comparison to this planet. This planet is, is so vast, it's, it's so much bigger than we realize. And so the cities of men are comparatively microscopic within... Each of these cities are multitudes of men. I just couldn't help but think, tiny, tiny, tiny men. Tiny. We are so small. Uh, several times, providentially, I don't know, this just happened to be. Maybe it's because this is the way mankind orchestrates himself in these places. But I would see what I knew to be rock quarries. And if you've ever stood near or been near a rock quarry, even that in itself is a pretty spectacular thing. Um, you're looking at a hole dug in the ground, and you're thinking, how, do we, how far can we go? This is monstrous. And tandem axle dump trucks look like micro-machines coming out of this thing all day hauling out rock. And I've, I've often thought, whenever I did tombstones, they would bring in shipments of, of granite, from Elberton, Georgia, every, every week, trucks. And, and I thought, if we're not careful, we're going to run out of rock. <laughs> and then you see a rock quarry from an airplane, and it looks like a child took their fingernail and just flipped up a little bit of dirt. It's nothing. Nothing. 
the things that we think are huge, mighty accomplishments, they're, they're infinitesimal. We're so small. The only thing big about our race is our ego and the catalog of our sins. If we think about you know, these, these, these worlds that we live in, especially with, uh, with social media, we, we feel like we are connected broadly. Right? We, the whole world is, is at my fingertips and we're connected. And I know people here and there and there. And if I put them all together you know, in this, this social media fantasy world that I created by, by accepting or denying who I would let in, uh, following or unfollowing who I will hear and not hear, I have created a virtual reality world in which I feel like now my tentacles are really out there. And it's so small. It's so tiny. I think of when you, you see, let's say you've got a million followers, a million friends, a million retweets. That's nothing. That's nothing. A million, we can't even fathom, nothing compared to the billions of people who live on this planet. It's nothing. We're so small. Cities are big, but the earth is bigger. The earth is big, but the universe is bigger. The universe is, is beyond our capacity to study. We can't even study the creature. We can't study the creature. In all of the lifetimes of humanity that will ever exist, we will not study the creature. And yet, there is a God in heaven who looks down over all of this. He's above it all. God Almighty looks down upon the universe and then further down into our solar system, then further down onto our planet, and then even further down into our big mighty cities, and even further down into our, our big houses, all the way down to each individual tiny, tiny person, the children of man. He looks down upon sinners like us and eventually we're going to have to come to terms with this question. What am I going to do with my sins against this God? Tiny as I am, a catalog of sins that I can't even in my lifetime record. I've sinned against Him. What am I going to do? What will you do with your sins? Paul says in this verse that I read, Romans 3, 9, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Notice just briefly the status of Paul's statement. He says, we have already charged. We've already shown this. We've already made it clear. The accusation has already been presented. He's sort of summarizing what he's been saying. He's not saying anything new at this point in the verse. He's summarizing what is the point of this section in the book of Romans. The, the first three chapters generally, the whole point is Paul's just saying everybody is under sin. All men are sinners. So as far as the status of what he's saying and as far as Paul's concerned, this is a known and proven fact. And if you go back to the earlier chapters, he actually uses human reasoning and what we all know to be true to prove this. We've already charged it. It's already understood and then secondly, the breadth of this statement, all both Jews and Greeks, we might would rather say uh, Jews and Gentiles. The point is Jews and not Jews. All types of people from every ethnic group, all men from every nationality are, concluded in this, are included in this statement. And then the burden of the statement is this, all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Jews, Gentiles, 
all people, Jews and not Jews, people from every nation under heaven are under sin. With regard to this phrase, under sin, John Calvin says it means justly condemned as sinners before God or held under the curse which is due to sin. So that's what Paul is saying. All people, Jews or Gentiles, every man from every nation is justly condemned as a sinner before God. All people are held under the curse which is due to sin. He'll go, he goes on to say in verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. He'll later say in verse 23, All have sinned. All of us. Nobody gets out of this. So the point, again, that Paul's making is one that we know from our own experience. We know this is true. All men are sinners. We are all sinners, at least by nature. And I want to... Well, I'll say this. At least by nature, we stand condemned before God. Our sins deserve to be punished. Children, when you disobey your parents, you get punished. Our sins, we've disobeyed God, we deserve to be punished. Sin has brought us all under God's curse. That's, that's the, the gist of Paul's statement here. Now, at one of, the, one of the messages that I had to give was at a church leaders conference entitled, Doing the Work of an Evangelist or uh, Evangelism and Preaching. And I, I tried to encourage the men that sometimes you have to think about just various ways or various circumstances in which you might share the gospel. For example, think about or, and go through your mind how you would articulate the gospel to someone who's never heard of Jesus. So they have no foundation and you're not going to have a lot of time to explain very many theological concepts. How would you, pre- or how would you share the gospel to that person? And I told them, now preach the gospel like that in your church. And that's what I want to try to do. I want to try to pretend like You've never heard the gospel. You've never, you've never dealt with this issue of sin. And I'm going to say things like that we all by nature stand condemned before God. And you might be sitting there and you have the hope of what Christ has done already. And you say, well, I'm, I'm not actually condemned. Well, do me the honors of allowing me to just pretend that we all are or that you all are. So that's what he's saying. Everybody, we're all sinners. We're all under God's curse. Now, the Puritans, they would, they would open up a text. They would say, here's the teaching. Here's the doctrine. All men are condemned. All men are under sin. Then they would go into the uses. How might we use that truth? I mean, that's what I want to do. I think one of the uses or applications of this truth is for self-examination. We can use this truth to examine ourselves, to turn the mirror of this, because we typically when we hear this truth from God's Word, picturing the Word of God as a mirror, we, we hold the mirror at an angle facing away from us. Like we might can see it, but actually we want the truth to deflect off onto other people. Or we, we look through it this way. So we look at the right angle and we can say, yeah, yeah, that person over there is under sin. Maybe angle it a little more. Yeah, that person over there is under sin. Turn it all the way around facing you where you're looking at your face. You can do this in the mirror every, every morning when you wake up at night before you go to bed. You can look in the mirror and you can say, that person right there is under sin, condemned before God, at least by nature. Self-examination. This truth is saying something about me. All men are under sin. 
men being short for mankind. You're a human being. You are a part of the race that we call mankind. And so the Bible teaches very clearly that, that my natural condition and your natural condition is justly, that is rightly, appropriately, properly condemned before God. And so use that to examine yourself. And hopefully one of the questions that would come to your mind is, what then? If that's my condition, what am I going to do about it? Or, what will you do with your sins? The Word of God brings this truth to us and sort of implies that we would also hear God saying, what are you going to do about this? What will you do with your sins? Maybe you've never thought about it like this before. Think with me. 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness. Literally, no lawness. Sin is no lawness. The law, when the Bible talks about the law, the law is a revelation of God's character. If we could take the moral perfection of this Almighty God who's looking down upon us men, if we could take His moral perfections and describe it or put it in the framework of what it would look like in the life of a human being, or we asked, what would it look like for a human being to perfectly mirror the ethical standard of Almighty God? Well, what you'll find is the moral law or the Ten Commandments would be the description of that character. That's what it is. The moral law shows us God's conduct in human terms. So we see things like honor your father and mother. We say, well, God doesn't have a father and a mother. Well, if He did, this is what it would look like. If, 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 if we took God's ethic of properly ordered uh, ordering of governing, governance, we put it in the framework of humankind, it would begin with mother and father. Honor your, your father and your mother. It's put in human terms. The moral law shows us God's conduct in human terms. Therefore, to be at variance with the law is to be at variance with God. As creatures made in His image, we are obligated to worship Him and honor Him by living lives that are lawful. We are to conduct ourselves according to His law, to be like Him, whether we like it or not. Whether we, whether we actually believe that it's honorable or right or not, that, that's irrelevant. As creatures, it is our duty to strive with all of our being to be just like Him in our moral and ethical uh, conduct. That would be lawful. To be lawless or no lawness, to be lawless, doesn't just mean we don't have a law or, or I'm, I'm without instruction. I don't have a law. No. What it means is you're personally, actively, intentionally averse to the law. You are an opponent of the law. That's what lawless means. And again, that would be to be averse to God. So lawlessness is personally, actively, intentionally, ethically, antagonistic toward God. That's what it means to be lawless. Opposed to God, against God, contrary to God, hostile to God. Sin is lawlessness. Therefore, sin as a condition and every single act of sin, whether it's in thought or deed, is an act of sedition against God. An instance of cosmic mutiny 
against God. We don't like a tyrant. You are tyrants. You are, you are turning the, the entire structure of authority on its head and you say, I'm God. My house, my life, my decisions. Every time you sin, that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. Cosmic mutiny. With regard to the infants that are here, Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Paul compliments that in Ephesians 2.3 when he says that we are all by nature children of wrath. Nature, as a human being conceived in the womb, children, the offspring of God's wrath under His anger, His just condemnation for sins. Even the infants don't get out of this truth. Children, you ever disobey your parents? You ever unkind to your brothers and sisters? You do things that you know are not really nice? Maybe they do something that's not nice and really it's not that big of a deal but you go quickly to tattle on them just out of spite because you kind of like to see them get in trouble. When they get in trouble, maybe they have to get a spanking and deep down inside you, you're kind of happy about it. Maybe your, your brothers or your sisters or some other uh, child that you know, they get something that's really cool or they get to go somewhere really cool and rather than being thrilled that they got that blessing, you think... I wish I had that. I want that. These are sins. What are you going to do with your sins? Preteens, teens, young adults, uh, whatever phrase will uh, please you. I don't want to offend anyone by calling people children who uh, don't feel like they're children. You ever get snappy with your parents? Just quick with your words. They say something, you bite back at them really quickly. Like, like you're their boss. Who, who is this fool giving me instructions? Or maybe you, you use your eyes or your body gestures or noises like uh, to express your discontentment with something your parents have told you to do. Some, some job they've given you to do and you just want to let them know. You don't have the gall to bow up at them and put your finger in their face. You don't, you're not bold enough to do that. But you'll huff and puff about it and just let them know. I'm just not happy. They need to know that I'm not happy. Then maybe you get off in your room and then you just let it stew, kind of fan into flame this, this bitterness in you where you deep down you believe they're wrong, they're ignorant, you're right. They don't really know what they're doing as your parents. They're giving you silly rules and silly instructions. And so you just fan that bitterness, maybe even thinking things sometimes like, I can't wait to get out of here and do what I know is the wise thing out from under these ignorant parents that God has given me. Or maybe, maybe you sometimes say things or do things with your friends that you know are unfit 
for the presence of the adults. If adults were around, you wouldn't talk about that stuff. You wouldn't say those things. That wouldn't be your conversation. And so you have to take your huddle and get away from the adults so that there's not so much oppression around you so that you won't get in trouble because you know you're saying things and doing things that you shouldn't do. Or maybe you just look at your daily schedule and you realize, I don't really pray ever. I'll read my Bible from time to time, but just because I feel like I have to. One of the one of the great privileges of being behind this pulpit and looking this way is I can see, I get to see who sings and who doesn't, who pays attention and who doesn't. We've gathered here in, a, in an assembly, a, a, a stated assembly for the very purpose of entering into the presence of Almighty God and rendering our worship, bringing Him worship. And there are some of you young people that don't sing, and that scares me to death. Because God deserves our songs. He deserves to be praised. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't care. Sing to Him. Are the birds singing in a language that you comprehend? No, they're just singing. Sing. Worship. Why would you not? Well, somebody might hear me. Somebody, I might say something wrong. I might sound weird. You're going to come into a place where we've decided to worship God and you're just going to say, well, I'm just not going to worship. I'm just not going to participate. That is deadly. That is frightening to me. Maybe some of you young people, you're already beginning to entertain thoughts of lust when you look at people of the opposite sex. You see uh, another boy or man, another girl or woman, and you're already beginning to entertain those thoughts so that really when it comes to a male or a female, your first thought is, well, what do they look like? This person looks like this and this person looks like that. You're already being drawn into that. Young people, these are sins. What are you going to do about it? I think if you're honest, maybe I'm, the, I'm, I'm uh, the only one that any of this is descriptive of, but I think if we're honest, we, we could all say, even the adults who've not reckoned with these matters from their childhood, we've got a lot of sins. What are we going to do with them? Men. Do some of you love sleep? Sleep is one of those things that's a tight, a, a, a thin line for us because God gives to His beloved sleep. Sleep is wonderful, but He also says, love not sleep. There is a tight, a very, very thin line to walk here as human beings in general, but as men especially, where we, we are very uh, quick to fall into loving Sleep, and then that sets our whole day out of order. Maybe you have some inordinate desires. Men, think about this. Inordinate desires, not things that are necessarily wicked or sinful in themselves, but they're just irregular or excessive so that your desire, uh, your, your, your money and your time and your thoughts about these things throw your life out of balance. If you put in the scale time, money, thought, true heart affection for the things of God, and then time, money, thought, and uh, affections for whatever this thing is over here, it would fall to the side because you're just out of balance, excessive in some area. 
Or maybe you find yourself often discontent with life's circumstances or you're covetous men. You look at the things that some of the other men have, uh, maybe the, the job uh, levels or, or um, attainments that others have and you wish, man, I, I, I wish I was where he is. And you covet another man's place in the world or maybe you find yourself very often uh, full of the fear of man in your workplace. The fear of man brings a snare. It's like a trap. The devil sets this trap. He can't stand for the truth to go forward. He can't stand for the gospel to be discussed. And so he'll set this trap that where you begin to believe that I, I should probably bite my tongue. And there are times when maybe you should be wise as serpents uh, and innocent as doves, but the fear of man is a sin. Husbands, you ever notice or catch yourself sort of bitter toward your wife? because she's not meeting her expectations. Or maybe impatient with her submission while you ignore your own duty to lead and love and serve her. Again, it's easy to have that mirror turned the other way. Husbands, maybe you, you just don't encourage your wife. When I read the Scriptures and I see the things that Christ says about His bride, it's very encouraging to me. Most of them actually hard to believe. Uh, there is no uncleanness in you. That's hard to believe. It's hard to, to, to come to terms with the fullness of the gospel in that sense. What I take from that is it's the job of a husband to encourage his wife. I wonder how many of you men, how long has it been since you told your wife that she's the hardest working person that you know? That she's doing everything so well. Don't, not, don't be untruthful. Don't flatter. But your wife needs to hear you say that what she's doing is right and biblical and honors the Lord and that you are able to see the fruit of it in your children. She needs to hear that. When's the last time you did it? Fathers, how often do you throw away opportunities to disciple your children's souls because it's easier to keep life shallow and fun. Right? Isn't that easy? I could, I could get spiritual and weird here. Well, we'll just, everybody's having a good time. I don't want to ruin it with questions inquiring after their hearts and what, how they're dealing with God. I'll disciple them in you know, other areas that are, that are physical, that are, that are outward things, how to be a man, how to conduct him, my, uh, themselves in the world, how to juggle their schedules and things like that, how to prioritize certain things. But I don't want to get too serious and ask my children, what do you think about your sins? What's your prayer life like? Do you ever talk to God about these types of things? Because it, it, that, that doesn't uh, create in us that jovial uh, lightness that we, we are addicted to. And so we just throw away those occasions. Man, how many of you are incon inconsistent in family worship because you just fail to plan? It doesn't happen because you just didn't plan well. That's on you. Maybe you're being inconsistent in dis disciplining your children. And so then that then issues forth in a very uh, a harshness or a shortness of temper with your children. But you spanked them for something two weeks ago. For two weeks, that you've let them run wild because you haven't. You've been too lazy to actually bring the thing forth to be consistent. And then they do it again, and you snap because 
you were inconsistent. Do you speak to your children the way Christ speaks to us? Man, these are sins. What are we going to do with them? Ladies, you ever notice that maybe your time in the Word is getting choked out because you love your pillow more than Christ, who didn't even have a place to lay His head for our sakes? Maybe you find yourself often discontent with God's calling and prescription for your life. You find yourself often wanting to peek over the fence and, and just be reminded of what the, the, the wave after wave of feminism has produced and what all of the other women get to do. And you kind of think, I, I, I wish that I were back there with them. Maybe you find yourself feeding your covetous hearts through hours on social media, looking at good things. They're good things. They're mom things, you know, but it's just hour after hour. And really it's, I wish I had that furniture. I wish I had that thing. I wish my family looked like this. Just coveting, 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 rather than close the thing and pour yourself into the household that God's given you. Maybe you relax the standards of obedience and discipline when your husband isn't, husband isn't around. Maybe you, you fail to pray for, support, and encourage your husband in godliness. Ladies, when's the last time you let your husband know that wherever he leads in godliness, though it might cost you dearly, though it might bring great restraints upon your family, though it might bring uh, times of, of real trouble upon your family, when's the last time you let him know that if he's leading in godliness, he has your full support and you'll go wherever he goes? As men... Your husbands need to know that. If they know that, they can do anything. A lot of times a husband is, is fearful to lead in a certain direction because he don't know what's going to happen when he has to break this news to her. He needs to know that. Maybe you don't say those things to your husband because deep down you, you don't, you're not really on board with that. You, you have certain standards we got to meet. What are you going to do with your sins? The older ones among us, maybe you find yourself often abdicating your responsibility to teach the younger ones. Oftentimes you'll hear or maybe see old, the older generation have this attitude. I've paid my dues. I've done my time. Because raising children was prison, right? You did your time, you got out. Maybe you sit back and scowl at how the young families conduct themselves while you're not willing to step in and help teach them. And you might think, that's, that's not my business. No, the Bible says it's your business. It's literally the business of the older ones to help the younger ones. And, and, and then young parents, it's easier for us to say, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, but are you teachable? Or have you already obtained all the information you need? Because, you know, I read Joel Beakey and I listened to Vody Bauckham's sermon. I think I'm good to go for parenting until they're out of the house. Very often we don't have a teachable spirit as young parents. Um, hopefully this is not self-seeking, but uh, there are some parents who have a, a track record of 100% when it comes to raising children and, and getting them out of the house still following the Lord. That might be the type of people you, you go to and say, hey, could you, could you help me here? 
did you teach me something? I want the 100% track record when I'm done. That's what I want. I, I, God's sovereign. But I'm, I'm aspiring to that. If I see parents who've got that kind of a track record, I want them to help me learn how to be a parent. I want to be teachable. And if you're not teachable, that's called the sin of pride. An unteachable spirit. You are, young, young parents and young families, you are to the older saints what your three-year-old is to you. Obstinate and hard-headed. And you look at your children and you think, why can't they just realize I've been here before, I've done it, I'm, trying, I'm just trying to help them, and yet you won't look to the older ones for the same kind of help. These are sins. What are you going to do with it? Some of you might be beginning to drift from what were once very strongly held convictions. Uh, when you come into circles like ours, usually you kind of come into the door of some strong, what most of the world considers fringe you know, belief. You know, you, you're in a setting where you say, I, I, I have this particular conviction that really nobody around me has. I've got to go somewhere where there are others who hold similar convictions. But what happens is you get two or three or four years in and you begin to relax those things. Or perhaps circumstances or difficulties come and they show that those convictions were just fair weather convictions. That it was easy to hold to those things that we hold dearly, we believe are biblical, but that a lot of people look at us with a sort of a... a a funny stare. It's easy to hold to those things when you're young, right? Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm, I'm fully convinced that we ought to, to teach our children at home. And when, when my six-month-old is, is child age, then, then we'll, that's what we're going to do. Well, what happens when you have six full-fledged students that you are responsible for teaching? Well, it would be easy to say, well, you know, the Bible is kind of unclear about... All of a sudden, what was your conviction? It was a conviction. Now you begin to drift. And I'm not saying that necessarily ought to be or must be somebody's conviction. But if you believe it's a biblical conviction, then hold to it. Listen. Any deviation from absolute mathematical parallelism to the ways and prescriptions of God is sin. Any deviation is sin. What will you do with your sins? I've just given a, a, a tiny list of things, predominantly issues in my own heart and life that I could put on paper. We could go on and on. We could spend all day just sitting here. I know everybody loves it. It's hard to sleep when somebody's putting their finger in your sore and, and pressing. But it's sin. So I think we all would, would be able to recognize and affirm the truthfulness of what Paul's saying. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with your sins? Not the sins of others, but your sins. Uh, maybe you think that hearing all this, you say, you're right, I'm going to begin right now to do good. Hopefully I live a long life and by the end of the thing, my good things will outweigh all of these sins. Well, again, the problem is uh, first and foremost your nature, not just the deeds that you do, but also the Bible teaches you can't even do any good apart from the Spirit of God, so that's out. Maybe you're just going to presume upon God's kindness. You say, I know God's good. I know that He's kind, and I expect that when I stand alone before Him, naked and exposed in all of my sins, in that moment He'll, he'll be the kind God that I know He is, and He will simply overlook my sins. Well, the problem with that is that God says He is kind, but His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. 
not comfort us in our sins. If you believe He's kind, then you ought to turn away from your sins and turn to Him. So that won't fly. Maybe you think that you'll fix as much about yourself as you can on your own. Then you won't look so bad. And then you'll come to God. Again, Christ said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So you can't do that. Maybe you openly admit your sinfulness. You don't try to hide it at all. You say, you're right, preacher. I'm a sinner. Never tried to hide it. I've never said anything different. Everybody knows I'm, I'm honest. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm a sinner. And you think that that type of honesty and transparency will be able to uh, be used as collateral in the judgment, right? Lord, remember, I, I, I was open about it. I would tell everybody I met that I was a sinner. Everybody knew I was a sinner. I was open and honest. Surely we can work something out. Or maybe you sort of picture that God is around the corner and you'll, you're going to leave your sins here. You'll hide them. You'll go around to meet Him, you'll build a relationship with Him, you'll become good friends, and then after you know Him well, you'll break the news to Him that there are some sins, but since y'all will be such good friends at that point, He'll just overlook them. Your sins won't matter that much. Does any of this even sound reasonable? It doesn't. it's, It's completely and utterly irrational. And hopefully you're not willing to try one of those and test it out in the judgment. But the judgment day is when I'll find out if my, my option is, is the one that worked. Surely the thought has passed through your mind before. What will I do with my sins? Again, back in chapter 1, Paul already made it clear that you know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. You know your sins deserve punishment. You don't like to be wronged any more than anybody else, Right? Somebody steals your wallet, runs by and grabs a woman's purse. What does everybody say? Stop that man! Why not just let him go? Oh, he's just taking a purse. What's the big deal? Nobody, everybody knows our sins deserve judgment. We all understand this. We actually want the wicked to suffer, at least in in temporal uh, judgments in this world. We, We feel that in us. Paul would say in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? God's justice is pointed at you saying, Stop that man! Stop that woman! Bring her back here! She must pay for her sins! One man said, never will there be a greater hatred for sin than God has this very moment. So what are you going to do with all these sins? What will you do with your sins? Well, a part of my job as a pastor is this. It's preaching. The biblical term for preacher means literally a herald. And in ancient times, the the king would have heralds who would go out to little towns and villages and places and they would gather the people and they would say, here is the edict from the king, here's the new uh, the law that's being passed, here's what the king desires to happen. So the king didn't have to go everywhere, he just sent out his heralds. And whenever the herald gathered the people around, they knew we're about to hear the message of the king. That's what a preacher is, that's my job. Literally, is to just tell you what the king has said, the king here being... God in Christ. So here's the king's message. Bring your sins to Jesus Christ. 
That's what God says. What will you do with your sins? The king says, bring them to him. Bring them to Jesus Christ. That's the executive order that's been handed down. God says, you bring your sins to me. But there's one condition. You must bring them all. You have to bring every one of them. That's the condition. You can't leave any at home. You've got to bring them all. Now, how can I say that? Well, we have texts in Scripture that help us. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's what we just talked about, our sins. And then it says, And the Lord has laid on him, speaking of his son, the iniquity of us all. So the question we've been asking is, what will you do with your sins? But here we have it put a little differently. What has God done with your sins? And the answer from the prophet is, He's laid the iniquity, He's laid our sins upon His Son, Jesus Christ. When John the Baptist saw Christ, the first thing he said was, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ takes away sin. Nobody else does this. Nobody else even advertises themselves as taking away sins. Jesus Christ is the one who takes away sins. So if Jesus Christ is the one on whom our sins are laid, and He is the one who takes sins away, then what will you do with your sins? What must you do with your sins? You must bring them to Jesus Christ. You must bring them to Him. You might say, well, I've got some sins that are really quite substantial. That list you read, that was pretty cute. But I've got some sins that you wouldn't want to read in a worship service. Listen, if you keep one of those sins from Jesus Christ, that one sin will stand against you in the judgment. And you'll answer for that. Your best bet is to, to bring them to Christ. He's the one who takes away sins. Whatever you bring to Him, He takes away. Whatever you keep, you answer for. So you've got to bring all your sins to Him. That's God's message. That's the message of the Bible. You're a sinner. Bring your sins to God. Bring your sins to Jesus Christ and bring them all. Look at verses 23 to 25 of this chapter. Paul continues the argument. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. In other words, Paul says, God the Father put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by His blood. That's a reference to His death. In other words, in His death, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is, or we would say chronologically, was a propitiation, and that was God's idea. God put Him forward. So Almighty God, this is the, the, what Paul's getting at here, this, this great God who looks down upon our universe, into our solar system, down on our planet, down into our homes, down into each one of us, He sees and He knows that all of us tiny, tiny men are sinners. We're under sin. He, he sees that none is righteous. No, not one. He says no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And that's true even of Christian women in, in good Reformed Baptist churches. Their mouth is full of bitterness. 
curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He sees that about us. He knows that the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth, that we are estranged from the womb and we go astray from birth, speaking lies, and that we have all like sheep gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. God saw that, that condition, and He said, Here, I'll put forward My Son, My only Son, that I love very dearly. And I'll give Him over to death. And as those hands of wicked men are nailing Him to the cross in what is an indescribable and unimaginable physical torment, on top of that, I will unload upon Him my my wrath, my anger, my vengeance toward the sins of these people. I will punish Him as if He committed the sins. Propitiation means a wrath absorbent. Christ on the cross was was like a sponge. And God dumped His wrath onto this, this one, this sponge, so to speak, and not a drop passed through the bottom of it. He soaked it all up. The ocean of God's wrath soaked it up in Himself. So that in His work, in His death, Jesus Christ is a propitiation by His blood in His death to be received by faith. To have His death count for you, you must bring your sins to Him. You must entrust yourself to Him. Rest in His death to pay for your sins. So again, what will you do with your sins? If you're here and you're not a Christian, the answer is you must bring them to Christ. And you must bring everyone whether you're young or old, take your sins to Jesus Christ. Here's the beautiful thing. He was raised from the dead. He's ascended into the heavens and He he awaits to hear your prayer. He's waiting to hear you call upon Him, to come to Him in prayer and to say, these are my sins. This is my need. I need a Savior. I'm giving them to you. He's waiting for that. And you can do that. You can go to Him. There's a a verse in, in John's Gospel that is really striking. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You ever read that verse before? Later on in John chapter 6, he says, Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Now you might still say, Well, you you just don't know the things that I've done. As, As kindly as I can put it as a herald, I probably couldn't care any less about the things you've done. Because the testimony is, the edict from the king is, Bring your sins to Jesus Christ. That's that's what matters. My job is simply to tell you that God said, bring your sins to me. Now, you you might then ask, 
Do I not need to make some sort of effort toward holiness and righteousness first? Should I maybe forsake my sins in order to come to Christ? There's a song that we sing. And I hope that when we sing it, we believe it. It goes like this. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in your hands. Don't bring any works. Just come. You've got to have your hands empty if you're going to take hold of the cross. Naked. Don't try to clothe yourself in some fake self-righteousness. Come. He'll give you clothes. Helpless. Don't get a little help and then come. Come helpless. You probably heard, bring your own parts, bring your own mechanic. right? Bring your own salvation, bring your own Savior. Bring your own works, bring your own Savior. What are you going to do with your sins? Well, you've got to bring them to Christ. How shall I come? Foul. That's what we sing, right? Foul, I to the fountain fly. Foul, covered with or containing extraneous matter which is injurious, noxious or offensive, filthy, dirty, not clean, turbid, muddy, impure, polluted, obscene or profane, defiling. That's how you come. Foul to the fountain fly. Don't ever let anything said in this pulpit or any person in this church give anyone the impression that we believe anything other than this one truth. Foul sinners must, and really, in that condition, that's the only way they can, come to Jesus Christ just as they are. Come just as you are. Mock the song all you want to, but that's the gospel. If we get that wrong, we've lost the gospel. Now, will He change you? Absolutely He will. The second, as a matter of fact, if you're coming, He's already changed you. But should you try a little self-effort first? No, no. Again, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything apart from Him. You can't clean yourself up a little bit apart from Him. You can't turn from your sin apart from Him. He says in Matthew eleven eighteen, 18, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't rest a little and then come. No, come to Him. He'll give you the rest. So if, the, if you're lost, that's what you do. You bring your sins to Him. Maybe you are a Christian, but you've got some sins that you're holding on to, or maybe you're still uh, going about a little bit of evangelical penance, a little more Bible reading, a little more prayer. Let me get myself in a little better uh, mode or, or mood, and then I'll come and confess this sin that's looming over me. Or maybe you're dabbling with false repentance. You, you're kind of faking it, but there's no power because you're not actually dealing with your sins. What, what must you do with your sins? The same answer. You must bring them to Jesus Christ. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. That's talking about Jesus Christ. The fountain has not changed locations. The fountain has not been emptied even after all these years. The fountain has not undergone restructuring in order to focus on something different. The fountain still remains in the same place for the same purpose. It's a fountain for 
for cleansing of sins, for uncleanness. The unclean come to the fountain and they're washed. So we never stop bringing our sins to Jesus Christ. Now we tend to get this mindset where we say, well, surely I have overstayed my welcome at this point. I, I, I feel like I've probably overpleaded on the merits of Christ's blood. And it is, it seems, even for those who've walked with Christ the longest, sometimes very hard for us to believe that we can come back one more time and come bring our sins to Him and He'll take them. Thomas Wilcox says, quote, All the power in nature cannot get so high in a storm of sin and guilt, as to believe there is willingness in Christ to save. In other words, it's not natural. Everything in our nature says He's not willing anymore. You can't bring more sins to Him. Who do you think you are? And he goes on to say, When Satan charges sin upon your conscience, then for the soul to charge it upon Christ, that is the gospel, that is to make Him Christ. He serves for that use. Can I bring more sins to Him? He serves for that use. You might as well say, I'm not sure these tires will roll across this pavement. I'm not sure this water will satisfy thirst. I'm not sure that this sun is going to warm the earth. It serves for that purpose. What else are you going to do with it? You might as well ask all those as to say, well, I'm not sure I can bring more sins to Christ. Listen, this is what we have to understand. Saints, all of our sins have already been laid upon Him. Already. They've already been born into His grave when as yet there were none of them for you and I. We don't take our fresh sins to Christ in order to receive a fresh atonement as if He has to offer another sacrifice. We take our sins to Christ repeatedly throughout our lives so that hopefully by the end of it, it's engraved upon our hearts that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that there's no amount of sins you could bring to Him to exhaust his, this, this fountain of washing, that haven't already received their just recompense in His body on the cross. They've already been atoned for. You're not bringing Him new work. You're just bringing Him your new sins. You take them to Jesus Christ. Bring your sins to Jesus Christ. Lost or saved, it makes no difference. There's nowhere else for any of us to take our sins. Jew or Gentile, it makes no difference. God has only ever given one Lamb, one Savior. There's only one name by which we must be saved, and that's Jesus Christ. So bring your sins to Him. And I hope that hearing this makes you love Him more than you did when you woke up this morning. Let's pray.